All right, my friends, if you have your Bibles with you, please now open them with me to Exodus chapter 32. Uh, today, we, we are coming to one of the, the saddest and most grievous and unloving responses to God that we see in the entire Bible. This is the golden calf situation. We're going to read the entirety of Exodus 32 and 33. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of the gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. 
He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You you know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) Appropriate response, church. (laughs) And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him and said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor." And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. 
Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for a man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Friends, who are the all-time worst Christmas villains, in your opinion? There are many Christmas villains who have tried to ruin Christmas for those around them. You obviously have Scrooge from a Christmas Carol, you have Scott Farkas from A Christmas Story, you have the Wet Bandits from Home Alone, you have Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. But friends, is there really anything worse than the Grinch? I mean, seriously. Scrooge is bad, Mr. Potter is evil, but Dr. Seuss's Grinch takes it to a whole new level. He is described as a green, furry, pot-bellied, pear-shaped, snub-nosed, humanoid creature with a cat-like face and a cynical personality. The Grinch is the epitome of Christmas evil. He is the opposite of Christmas cheer. He has an anti-Christmas spirit. He seeks to steal Christmas from the people of Whoville. Listen to the evil of this character. He slithered and slunk with a smile most unpleasant around the whole room, and he took every present. Pop guns and bicycles, roller skates, drums, checkerboards, tricycles, popcorns, and plums, and he stuffed them in bags. Then the Grinch, very nimbly, stuffed all the bags one by one up the chimney. It was quarter past dawn, all the who's still in bed, all the who's still a snooze when he packed up his sled, packed it up with the presents, the ribbons, the wrappings, the tags and the tinsel, the trimmings, the trappings. 3,000 feet up, up the side of Mount Crumpet, he rode with his load to the tip top to dump it. 
Hoo-hoo to the who's, he was grinchously humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the who's down in Whoville will all cry, boo-hoo. The song rightly says that he is the king of sinful thoughts, and his soul is an appalling dump heap. Dr. Seuss says this character should make our soul shudder. Friends, we should feel similar emotions about what we read here in our text today. There is a very real villain. There's a very bad enemy in our text today. Only what we see here is not just a fairy tale. It's not a cute Christmas poem. No, what we see here is a horrific and terrifying depiction of the sinfulness of sin and the sinfulness of our own hearts. And friends, we must study it together today. And as I say that, you might say, Joel, you're kind of like the Grinch. It's Christmas time. Why would we study sin today? But friends, we have to do this because the text says it. We have to keep going through God's word. And we have to do it because in reality, the joy of Christmas will only be greater if we consider it in light of the villain that our sinfulness really is. And so let's study this together this morning. Friends, the main idea for our sermon is this. The sinfulness of sin separates us from God and demands an intercessor between God and man. The sinfulness of sin separates us from God and demands an an intercessor between God and man. And we, we have three points this morning. Number one is sin. Number two is separation. And number three is intercession. Those are our three points. Let's begin with the first point, which is simply sin. The, the phrase, the sinfulness of sin, that, that might seem uh, like a redundant phrase or to not make grammatical sense, almost like saying the, the greenness of green or the badness of bad. But the sinfulness of sin is a phrase that has been used by theologians for many centuries now, and I think it is an apt phrase because it highlights the, the wrongness of sin. If the word sin means to, to miss the mark or to break God's law, which is exactly what it means, and which is why Moses breaks the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them in verse 19 because they've broken the law. If that's what sin is, then the phrase, the, the sinfulness of sin, speaks to how far we have missed the mark, how badly we have broken his law. And friends, there are few texts in God's word that show the sinfulness of sin more significantly than the text in front of us. This is, this is intense. What we read here is overwhelming to our senses and sensibilities. How can Israel make this big of a mistake before God? Here's how. The sinfulness of sin. The evil of evil, the the wrong of wrongdoing. What we see in this text is that that humanity as a whole, every man and woman, is not just a little bit in trouble. No, what we see here is that the state of humanity, apart from God's grace, is in big trouble. Verse 30, Moses says of Israel, they committed a great sin. They have sinned a great sin. Church, this text highlights the sinfulness of sin. And not just for the Israelite people many, many years ago, but also the sin of every man and woman in this room. 
Every boy and girl in this room, every college student in this room, every parent, every grandparent, every child and grandchild, this text is supposed to serve as a warning and a guide for us so that as we see the sinfulness of sin, we might turn and find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Friends, consider with me some of the characteristics of sin that come out of this text as we read it. We see that sin is marked by impatience. Look at verse 1 with me of chapter 32. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. So, So this horrific event of idolatry and idolatrous worship, it begins with a delay and impatience in that delay. Moses had been on the mountain meeting with God for 40 days. And and that's kind of a long time, but it's not that long of a time. I mean, they've just spent 400 years in slavery, and God has just miraculously delivered them through the waters of the Red Sea. God has proven that he's going to meet them and sustain them in the wilderness by sending bread and water to meet their needs. But yet, in just 40 short days, these people forget the faithfulness of Yahweh. And they grow impatient in their circumstances. Verse 8 says about them, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. God God says to Moses, already, Moses, they've rebelled. Already they have turned, I'm not even done talking to you, and they're already rebelling. This is so sorrowful. The, The fact that the people who walk through the Red Sea on dry land are now growing impatient with the God who made that possible. Is there anything clearer? to show us the sinfulness of sin. Sin is impatient. Church, let me ask you this question. Where have you grown impatient with God? And how is it leading you towards sinning against God? How has impatience led you towards that dating relationship that you know you shouldn't be in? How has impatience with God and that you think your, your spouse will never change, how has it led you to begin to hate your spouse? How has impatience with God to give you the friends that you want led you to get angry and to disconnect from the community around you? How has impatience with God led you to become angry about your kids who aren't living the way that you want them to? Listen, sin is impatient. It leads us to, to act out against God. It's impatient, it's also manipulative. See, see, many of us would never sin in certain ways if we thought that it was only evil. If, if sin was only bad and ugly, many of our consciences would keep us from doing, but, but our sinful hearts are so manipulative that what they do is they try to combine our sinful desires with things that we know to be good and right and true in order to make us feel better about ourselves as we go on sinning. And that is exactly what we see in this text. It says that they create a a golden calf. Why? Well, because bovine worship, cow worship, was everywhere in Egypt. And so it was familiar to the Israelites. It felt more comfortable. There was a a comfort to their souls because it was visible and tangible and, and familiar. But listen, they didn't just choose a calf and call it the God of Egypt and start bowing down to it. No, their consciences probably would not have let them do that. And so what do they do? Well, they create a golden calf in the image of Egypt, but then they call it the Lord of Israel. 
Look at verse 4. They actually used God's own covenantal language from chapter 20, verse 1, when they say, these are the gods, of, uh, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Those aren't those, their words. Those are God's words. They're incorporating just enough truth to make their hearts feel okay about their sin. In verse 5, they even say that they, had, they were going to offer a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh, in front of this calf. Have you ever tried to combine your sinful idolatry with worship of God? I guarantee that you have. Because we all have. This is what sin does. We, we allow our laziness and our lack of diligence in life and in serving in the local church to happen. Because, you know, we really love to celebrate that our God is a God of rest. And he doesn't really like to ask too much of us. Let's really emphasize that biblical value. We allow our materialism or our gluttony to take control because we keep telling ourselves, well, God made this world. He made the things of this world. And so it's good for us to enjoy them and to, to enjoy even too much of them because they're all from him and for him and to him. He told us to have dominion over the world in Genesis, and so being a workaholic and ignoring the responsibility to disciple my family is okay because I'm fulfilling God's design for my life in other ways. We allow sexual immorality into our lives because we tell ourselves that God's a God of pleasure and a God of happiness, and he would never want to deprive us of those things. We remain angry and unloving towards others because, well, God gets angry, and, and he doesn't like sin and wrongdoing, and so let's just hold that grudge. The sinfulness of sin, it is impatient, it is manipulative, and it loves to avoid blame. Look at verses 21 to 24 of chapter 32. When God sends Moses down from the mountain, Moses goes to Aaron, his brother-in-law, and he says, Aaron, what in the world did these people do to you that led you to lead them in this way? Aaron, did they torture you? Aaron, did they, did they threaten to stone you or beat you or burn you? What did they do to you that you led them in this way? What bad things happened that you turned away so quickly? None of that happened. They just asked Aaron to do it, and Aaron did it. It's terrible. But Aaron does not admit that he's done it. Look at verse 22. Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they... <laughs> that they are set on evil, for they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. So I said to them, let any of you have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. But that's not what happened at all. Verse 4 very specifically says that Aaron received their gold and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it a golden calf. He fashioned it. He carefully made it with a tool in his hand. But yet in verse 22, it just jumped out at me. <laughs> I couldn't help it, Moses. It would be funny if it wasn't so sinfully wicked. But friends, it, it really is what we do in our hearts, isn't it? We love to shift blame. Our kids made us do it. They push our buttons. Our stressful season made us do it. Our hormones made us do it. Our parents who left us in the past made us do it. Our meds made us do it. We, we shift blame all the time. Or, or we avoid blame altogether. Listen, I don't know why I looked at pornography again. 
I was just in my room at 2 a.m. in the morning, nobody else around, computer open, no, no safeguards, no accountability, and the pornography just jumped out at me. I, I, it, just jumped, it was there all of a sudden. Well, I don't know how another calendar year has gone by without any more spiritual growth and development in the Lord. It's, it's not because I don't love Jesus. It's just it's crazy how fast Sundays and Tuesday nights get filled up on my calendar. Stuff just jumps onto the calendar. I, I, I didn't do it. I, I would love him more if I could. Church, this is the sinfulness of sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the sinfulness of Exodus 32 was very specifically written about for our instruction. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall, Paul says. This is the sinfulness of sin. And it leads towards our second point, point number two, separation. Sin and now separation. What, what, are, what are pet peeves that you have? What, what are things in your life that when people do them, they, they annoy you deeply and you, you are tempted just to, to walk out of the room, to be done with those people? Is it when people chew loudly in front of you? Maybe it's when they crack their knuckles in front of you. Maybe it's when people talk during that movie. Does that tempt you to throw them out of the house or to leave the room altogether yourself? What are the things that annoy you and make you want to bring separation between you and someone else? Whatever that feeling is, multiply it by a bazillion and you will begin to understand the feelings that God has against our sin. But listen, it is not just a pet peeve for God. There, there's nothing inherently sinful about our pet peeves. There's nothing wrong with cracking your knuckles. But for God, he cannot be in the presence of our sin. He must separate himself from our sin and from us who are sinners because he is simply too holy. He is too pure, too perfect, too glorious, too perfectly just. He cannot be in sin's presence it's so much more than just a pet peeve for the living God. And we see it in our text today. In verse 7, it says that the Israelites turned aside. That speaks of separation. In verse 10, God says to Moses, Let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot. That's separation and judgment. Verse 33, God, God threatens to blot them out of his book. Chapter 33, verse 1, he says, Depart. Go up from there. I will not go up with you. That's separation. Verses 7 to 11 of chapter 33, we see Moses speaking with God in what is a, a temporary tent of meeting before the full tabernacle was to be built. And it says that, that he pitched that tent outside the camp. It says far off from the camp. Why? Because God could not dwell among a sinful people without atonement being made for their sins. That's separation. Sin separates. And friends, we know this. In Genesis chapter 3, because of sin, it says that God put cherubim with a flaming sword at the entrance so that Adam and Eve could not walk back into God's presence with their sin. In the tabernacle, as we have learned, there are cherubim skillfully sewn into the thick curtain separating the holy of holies. Why? Because there needs to be separation. Listen to the words of Psalm 5. The psalmist says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. That's separation. 
Earlier this week, I was working on memorizing Psalm 7, and I could not believe how stark these words were. Psalm 7, verse 10 says, God is a righteous judge, listen, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. That's separation. That's judgment. In Matthew 25, Jesus himself, when talking about the final judgment before the very throne of God, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, before him will be gathered all the nations. And listen, he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then he will say to those on his left, there's this word again, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's separation and judgment because of sin. And we see the severity of it, we get a glimpse of the severity of it in our text today when it talks about Levi and his sons and their killing of 3,000 people because of this sinful rebellion. And we see it again when it says in verse 38 that God sent a plague against the people. The sinfulness of sin separates us from God and it brings judgment. The villain is a big problem. The enemy within is attacking us from within and separating us from the God that wants to dwell with us. And considering this might feel deeply discouraging to you this morning. It's not easy to have a big enemy as severe as this, but listen, identifying our enemy will lead to the greatest victory over our enemy. And friends, I will never forget when God first had victory over the enemy within my soul. Never forget it. Never want to forget it. It's nine years old. I've been talking to my dad about the gospel and one morning I was reading in the, the Gospel of, of Mark where it, it says that Jesus was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees, the religious elite, looked at it as scandalous. And so they said to the disciples, why? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said, it is not the well. It's not the healthy who need a physician or a doctor but the sick. He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And friends, in that moment, I realized how big the problem was for me. I was sin sick. The, the sinfulness of sin was in my own nine-year-old heart. And no amount of my good works, no amount of obedience to my parents, no amount of service in the church, no amount of anything in myself could make me healthy enough to get back to God. Couldn't happen. And I remember realizing how bad it was. I'm sin sick. I'm dying. I need help. And I remember realizing that it was Jesus who was sent into this world, into the sinfulness of humanity. And I remember this Jesus who was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. He was sent for me. And I remember running to my dad and being like, Dad, look at this text. And we gloried in it together. And I believe that was the moment God saved me from my sins. It's painful to see how sinful we are, 
friends. It's not easy. We don't like looking at the messiness of our lives and the mistakes we've made. But what it ought to do is just propel us towards Christ and what he has done for us and how he is the great mediator between God and man. And friends, that brings us to our third and to our final point, which is intercession. In the Grinch that stole Christmas, the problem was solved when the people of Whoville responded to their severe trial with a good attitude and when they choose to sing with Christmas cheer despite their Christmas presents being stolen. And it says that the goodness of Whoville so affected the Grinch that his heart grew three sizes that day. But dealing with the villainous Grinch is much easier than dealing with the villain of our sinful hearts. Because no amount of singing, no amount of good intentions or good works, no amount of religiosity, no amount of warm holiday reflections are enough to take our sinful hearts and to make them come alive before God. Now something needs to happen to us. Something needs to happen for us. And we see what needs to happen in our text today. When, when God says to Moses, Moses, go down from the mountain. Listen, Exodus 32 and 33 are pretty confusing to read at first. It's hard to understand the flow of what is going on. And I think we actually need to view them somewhat separately in order to, to better understand them. But the common theme throughout these two chapters is that Moses is God's chosen mediator and intercessor for the Israelite people. In, in, in Exodus chapter 32... We see Moses as the intercessor between God and Israel in order to deal with the immediate issue of God's wrath and judgment against their idolatry. And so in verse 7, the Lord, the Lord tells Moses to go down to the people of Israel. And, and God very specifically says to Moses, for your people, the people that you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have sinned. God says that they are Moses' people. He, he positions Moses as their representative. But then in verse 11, Moses immediately turns it back on God. It says that he implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt? He's clearly positioned by God to implore, to, to intercede on their behalf. He is the go-between. And it says in verse 14 that the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on the people. So, Exodus 32, primarily about the sin of idolatry and Moses interceding on behalf of the Israelites before God in order for God to relent from consuming them in his holy judgment. There is mercy given through intercession and even judgment as we see with the plague and the killing. But then chapter 33 turns a bit of a corner. We see Moses still as an intercessor, but in a bit of a different way. It's less about judgment and more about ongoing relationship with God. God's not going to consume them anymore. He decided against that, but he says that he will no longer go forward with them to the promised land. And that, according to verse 4, is a disastrous word. And it absolutely is a disastrous word because Israel is nothing apart from God. They need his presence. And so here again, we see the intercession of Moses. And actually, it's, it's kind of strange as you read through the text. Verses 7 to 11 
seem to interrupt the story and the conversation between God and Moses. Those verses are about a temporary tent of meeting. It's not the tabernacle, it's a temporary tent of meeting, and it seems like a random insertion into the narrative of the story. But I think it's actually very specific by the Holy Spirit, very intentional. Why? Because it highlights the intercessory work of Moses. He's the mediator. Moses has to go outside the camp to meet with God on behalf of the Israelites back at camp. And seeing that and speaking of it here helps us to understand the theme of these two chapters. We are supposed to see that it's all about sin, It's all about separation, and it's all about intercession. And that's exactly what we see at the very end of chapter 33. In verse 17, because of Moses' bold intercession, it says that the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Friends, a lot of people think and wonder about whether God really would have left the Israelites behind. In these texts, is is God uncertain about what he's going to do? Might, Might he change his covenant because they've broken it and turn his back on Moses and the Israelites? Well, no. God is not uncertain about anything. His ways are perfect and his ways are set. And we see how perfectly set his ways are in how he sends Moses down the mountain immediately. Listen, if God was going to destroy all of Israel and judge them, why not just keep Moses up on the mountain and send hellfire down on the people at the foot of the mountain? Why not just do that? But he doesn't. Why? Because he knows that he's going to have mercy. But he also knows that that mercy needs to come through a mediator. Otherwise, he will consume them because of their sin. And so he he sends Moses down and he, he even says, Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Is God really being asked to be left alone by Moses? No. He's actually inviting Moses to intercede for the people of Israel. When God says, let me alone that I may consume them, he's making the consuming of them contingent upon whether Moses leaves him alone or not. But if Moses does not leave him alone, if he intercedes, which is what God has called him to do since Exodus chapter 3, God fully knows that he will relent. And that's exactly what we see in verse 14. He relents. Moses is the mediator. He is sent very intentionally by God, but but he stands on behalf of Israel. He's, He's on God's side, but he's able to represent sinful humanity, and God uses the threat of judgment as an invitation for Moses to fill his role, to pray, to intercede, to do the work of a mediator. And this, as we will see, it brings great grace and great mercy to Moses and to Israel. He does not consume them and he does not abandon them. The relationship is restored. But why? Because God sent a mediator to intercede for them. And what a picture of the gospel this is. The bad news is very bad. The sinfulness of sin runs very deep. Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament paints a picture of our hearts that reflects everything we've seen today in Exodus 
32, Paul the Apostle says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Listen, the problem is so bad. Our hearts don't need to just grow three sizes in our day. No, they're stone cold. They're dead. They need to be made alive. They need to be given new life and new grace. And Paul says, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Church, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We were dead, but God sent a mediator to intercede on our behalf. He sent his son so that he might show the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness towards us in him, in Christ Jesus. In, in the first two chapters of Ephesians, we see the words in Christ almost 15 times. Why? Well, Because if we're not hidden in Christ, we will be consumed by the wrath of God. Because just as Moses was needing to intercede on their behalf. Otherwise, they would have been consumed. So we need an intercessor on our behalf, and Christ is that for us. Just as Moses was an imperfect man, but was chosen to intercede for Israel in a temporary way, God has now sent his perfect son to intercede for us in an eternal way. And friends, here is the beauty of Christ. Not only has his intercessory and mediatory work satisfied the wrath of God against our sins once, like we saw in Exodus 32, but the intercessory work of Jesus, because he is eternal, because he is raised from the dead, because he is alive today and seated at the right hand of God, the intercessory work of Jesus, it works on our behalf even now so that God promises to go with us for eternity and to never leave us behind. Why? Hebrews chapter 7 says that this Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. This Jesus stands before God the Father, bearing the wounds of his hands and his feet, saying, I died for them. I died for them. They are made in your image. You have stamped your, your people with your grace, and I have paid the price. Now love them and keep them and prosper them. He is standing on our behalf, offering himself again and again, even as he did on the cross, hanging there, gasping for breath, saying, God, forgive them. They know not what they do. Our sins have been forgiven forever. Relationship has been perfectly restored forever because we have an eternal mediator between God and man. His wounds will forever plead our cause. I don't care how bad your week was. I don't care how weak you feel like you are. His wounds today are pleading your cause. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has defeated the villain of sin. He has defeated the villain of sin, so Christian, 
you can now come. You can come boldly. Now, through though sin remains, you do not need to cower in shame or in fear. No, you can lift your hands and sing, not, not like the people of Whoville who were just trying to make the best out of a hard situation. No, you can lift your hand and sing because you really do have an eternal hope in Christ who is your mediator and inter intercessor before God. And so, Christian, come. Come, all you unfaithful. Come, weak and unstable. Come, know you are not alone. Oh, come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying, come, see what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. Oh, come, bitter and broken, come with fears unspoken, come, taste of his perfect love. Oh, come, guilty and hiding ones, there is no need to run, see what your God has done. Christ is born for you. He's the lamb who was given, slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. He's the lamb who was given, slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing, come, because he is the offering. Come, see what your God has done. Please stand and sing with me now.